Well, I've really enjoyed going through these books of Samuel. I trust you've been enjoying them as much as I think Lamb and I have been enjoying them. Uh, There are are things here that I I, I never realized were here. Um, Remember Ittai the Gittite? You'll hopefully never forget Ittai the Gittite, the man from Gath who forsook all of his past to abandon himself to be a servant of David and eventually became a commander in his army. Well, one of the things that I felt as I read through the passage, which we, long passage which we had tonight, and I said to Kerry at the end, what a mess. And it really was a mess. As you'll see in this account, as we look through uh, David seeking to return and uh, recapture the throne over Israel after Absalom's uh, rebellion, it really is a mess. And the lives of the individual people involved have got entangled in all sorts of political and uh, fleshly um, judgments. And I was thinking, these two books of Samuel, um, one of the reflections that God seems to bring through as we read these books is, how does a person make a good judgment? How does, do you and I make good decisions? Because there seem to be a whole lot of people in, in, this, uh, in these accounts from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel. Um, take Eli, for example. What is your reflection on Eli's life? Did he make good decisions? How did he go about raising his sons? Did he challenge them about their sinful behavior? Or did he just let it go? What happened as a result of that decision? Did he concern himself about his own personal uh, um, well-being? We hear that he was old and so fat he fell over and died at the end. Was he making good decisions? Well, what about Elkanah? Uh, Elkanah, who was seemingly a godly man, who, and yet he married two women. What happened with those two wives? What did Penina do to Hannah? Was this a good decision? But then you've got people like Hannah. Did she make good decisions? And what were the decisions that she made that were good? When you reflect on the life of Hannah, what stands out to you about her life? And of course, Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, what did they do? Were they making good decisions, sleeping with prostitutes? Indulging themselves with the sacrifices of the people? Were these good decisions? And then Samuel, the young boy who went into service with Eli. Did Samuel make good decisions? How did he make good decisions? What about Saul when he became king? What was his downfall? Wasn't it the decisions that he made? And then David, of course, uh, who begins with such... Uh, vitality and and an incredible blessing and as we've reflected upon his life his prayerfulness uh, 
And yet, what about his decision not to go to war in the time that kings are meant to be going to war? And Absalom, did he make good decisions? He won over the whole of Israel onto his side, seemed to be rolling along. But what about his, uh, his choice of advice when uh, Ahithopel gave him the very advice that would have seen him succeed and overthrow his father? But he chose instead to take the advice of Hushai, who was actually on David's side. So in all of this, how are these people making decisions? And what is the basis of making good decisions? Well, as we begin this uh, account tonight, we have David uh, with Absalom defeated in battle uh, and uh, uh, the decision to support Absalom now in the eyes of the Israelites, was it a good decision? And what sort of condition are they in having made that decision? Israel had fled every man to his own house Why was that? Because the one they put their trust in was now dead and it looked like the one that they had opposed, King David, was now returning to take the throne. It certainly looks like a mess, doesn't it? Based on people's decisions. David responds to this confusion by appealing to the men of Judah. In all of this account, in the whole story that we read tonight, I don't think there is one reference to anyone seeking the mind of God. Nobody, including David, does not seek the Lord concerning the decisions he was to make. Well, he makes a political decision. He knows that Judah are his own flesh and blood and so he appeals to them to get on his side as he comes back to Jerusalem. And uh, he appoints Amasa as the new commander of his army. What a disaster that was. How long did Amasa last? In a chapter's time, he's murdered by Joab. And why is David doing this? Because he's seeking a political advantage by appointing one of his relatives to the senior position of his army so he might gain strength among the people of Judah and get them on side. Is this good decision-making? Yes, we read here, and the king sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You're my brothers, you're my bone and flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. Why do you think David is doing this? Wasn't it Joab who challenged him about his, his remorse in, in the face of the death of, of Absalom? And that Joab said to him he had made friends of God's enemies and, and uh, was making enemies of God's friends? Doesn't look good, does it? Well, he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. 
well. The whole episode and the resultant revenge designed by David exposes the corruption of his heart. No consultation of God anywhere in this story. David lets Joab live after he had killed Absalom, presumably because Joab's loyalty and effectiveness as commander of Israel's military, since Joab had incurred blood guilt, David should have dealt with him. But he did not, leaving the task to Solomon. He told Solomon later on to kill Joab. This points to a weakness on David's part. Although David was a good king overall, when it came to Joab, he was more concerned with Joab's effectiveness than he was with Joab's sin. David deferred Joab's punishment until after his own death, letting it fall to Solomon to deal with Joab. Of course, since Joab was prone to following his own way, he could have been a threat to Solomon, so executing him was a convenient way to eliminate a potential rival. However, Joab was killed at the altar Though not even criminals were to be put to death there, all in all, neither David nor Solomon come out of this episode looking innocent. Even the best saints fall short of the glory of God. But why are they making these decisions? Where is the consultation with God? Later, Solomon was instructed by David to remove Shimei. You'll notice in this story that David pardons Shimei. Remember Shimei? He was the man who cursed David, you know, when, when Absalom was reigning and he cursed David. And now Shimei comes running out to him and seeks mercy and, 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 and favor in the eyes of David and David pardons him. And then he says to him, you know, he gives him this, this uh, uh, absolution, if you like, in Second Samuel 19. Let me find it here. He says to Shimei, Shimei says, For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Did you know David instructs Solomon to kill Shimei? What sort of people are these? What sort of decisions are these? Why are they making these decisions? Why is David making these decisions? Well, it's because he's not consulting God. He's not seeking God's guidance and wisdom. He's seeking political advantage to regain the throne in Israel. Without seeking the counsel of the Lord or the wisdom of others, David makes some very poor decisions. But in this story, there's another man. And like we had Ittai the Gittite, we've got Barzillai the Gileadite. 
And I want you to remember this man, Barzillai, because he comes to David seemingly very graciously, and he certainly looked after David wonderfully when David was in, in fleeing from Absalom. It says, Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And Barzillai makes a response. David says to him, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. Now, here's the king inviting you into his household. What is Barzillai's response to this? Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? You see, an 80-year-old man is declaring himself to be a burden. Is that what we do when we get to 80 years old? Hmm? This is a very challenging point, this, this point tonight. You see, the scriptures tell us the contrast between a man like Barzillai and a man like Caleb, who at 80 years of age says absolutely the opposite that Barzillai says. Why? What is the basis of decision-making like this? Why do we, when we get old and frail and weaker, start to think that we're, you know, we're fading away and we're no good and we're of no use? What, 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 who have we consulted to find out whether that's true? Hmm? And it may not just be your age, by the way. It may be that you're a young person facing incredible challenges. I think Lamb was referring to that in terms of the young people who are going to school in the age in which we're living. And they might feel themselves, oh, this is a terrible time to be going to school. Well, Daniel wouldn't say that when he went to Babylon. Or Esther when she went to Persia. Weren't these the very times when these ones were mightily used of God? So what is the basis of making decisions? What is the basis of our making conclusions about ourselves and our circumstances that lead us to make decisions? And as I reflected on this, I was thinking, Barzillai, what are you doing? You're a man who has graciously provided for the king. You're a man who's in your 80s. You you could be a wonderful blessing to David but you're retreating. You're saying, can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? How do you discern what is pleasant and what is not? What is the basis of your discerning what is good and what isn't good? I love what Lydia found of Charles Spurgeon. He says, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It is knowing the difference between right and and almost right. And there are a lot of decisions made in this chapter that appear to be almost right 
but are they right? And could that be our own failure too? That we at times discern based on natural things, just like Barzillai is doing in this story. And I reflected, Barzillai, what are you doing here? Can I discern? What is the basis for this statement? Where does true discernment come from? Abraham, when he was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. 99 years of age. Was Abraham of no use at 99? Come on, let's be serious. If Abraham had not at this moment done what he does in this passage, then Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Well, Barzillai is not making that decision, is he? At 80 years of age, he's decided, I'm fading out. God says to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I'll make you into nations and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you. Why is that? Why is God so favoring Abraham with this? Because he believed in the character of God. That's what the Bible tells us. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And so often in life, take Moses. When did God choose to use Moses? When he was a young man? When he was all fit and healthy and trained up in the way of the Egyptians? What did he do? He did exactly what David and all these other people are doing in this chapter, making their own decisions, using their own wisdom, using their own strength and political intrigue. And what's the fruit of it? Actually, disasters. But God chose to put Moses out into the wilderness for 40 years until how old was he when God called him? Barzillai? How old was Moses, Barzillai? Oh, Barzillai, you should remember your heritage. God chose Moses when he was 80 years old and Caleb as I said before the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite in Joshua 14 says you know what the Lord said to Moses the man of God in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me I was 40 years old when Moses the servant of the Lord sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land and I brought him word again as it was in my heart but my brothers who went with me made the heart of the people melt yet I wholly followed the Lord my God And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said these 45 years. How old is he now? 85 years old. Since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, I am 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. And how is that possible? Barzillai, how is that possible? 
He's not relying on his own strength. He's not looking to the natural. He's not looking to what he can accomplish. When, when he came out of the land with Joshua, what did he say to the people? Our God can defeat these giants in the land. I'm still as strong today as I was in that day. My strength now is my strength was then for war and for going and coming. Barzillai listened to Caleb. But perhaps we also need to listen. Perhaps so easily we make judgments about ourselves, about other people based on natural things and not on consulting God. James, who writes this beautiful passage that was read to us tonight, what does he say? James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Is that what we do? Is that our judgment? We count it pure joy when we meet these trials. No, it's not, is it? We have a natural response to these trials and start to, like Barzillai, we say, oh, it's all too much for me. James is saying, no, count it pure joy. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. How can we put our trust in God unless God shows us we can't trust ourselves? And how does he show us that we can't trust ourselves? He puts us in circumstances beyond our own abilities, beyond our natural capabilities, and he calls us not to look to them, but to look to God. And let steadfast and have its full effect, James says. If any of you lacks wisdom, and this is the point, here's Barzillai saying, can I discern? And the echo of the godly should be, Barzillai, you can discern. Ask God. But he's looking at the natural If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith. In faith, believing in the character of God. That's why Abraham was counted righteous. That's why at 99 years old, God could entrust his covenant to Abraham because he believed God. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can you? On what basis can you discern what is pleasant and what is not, what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is almost right. What is the basis of our confidence? Is it in ourselves, our natural abilities? Or is it truly in the one who calls us to trust him? James finishes with, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. 
I picture Barzillai being invited by the king to join him in Jerusalem and he's just given up the crown of life. He's retreated. What does he say? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. What did Jesus say about burying our father and our mother? Going back into the natural. Well, James goes on in chapter 3 of his letter to say, Who is wise and understanding among you? Who is wise and understanding? Where is your wisdom found? Where do you find your discernment? The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom, when we put our trust in God and him alone, we don't judge based on our own abilities, our own personal circumstances, we trust him. If you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I want to remember Barzillai and Ittai. Ittai who surrendered his natural to be a servant of the king. And Barzillai who retreated into his natural and gave up being in the palace at the end of his life. Amen.